0: The Ostomy Nurse Project. Hi everybody, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in today. If you're listening to us this morning on The Ostomy Nurse Project, you'll be tuning in to the third episode of a three-part series talking about three of the common types of stomas that are formed. Episode 1 talked about the colostomy, episode 2 talked about the ileostomy, and today's episode is going to focus on the newest of the stomas that was formed out of the three, which is the urostomy, otherwise known as the ileal conduit or urinary diversion. Now, if you're tuning in today, you might be a somebody who has been given information that you might have to undergo this type of surgery. You may be a family, a friend or a loved one of somebody who might be undergoing this type of stoma formation, or you might just be an interested party or healthcare professional that wants a little bit more knowledge about the urinary diversion or urostomy. You might even be an individual that already has this type of stoma, and you're just generally curious. You may have missed something when you had your initial consultation, and you want to brush up on your skills and knowledge about having a urostomy. And much like the other two episodes, I'm going to start with a little bit of history and definition, a little bit of anatomy and physiology talking to you about where in the body these types of stomas are formed. And then I'm going to be talking about what to expect if you have to have this surgery and what you're going to wake up with and how your stoma nurse will help you within a hospital to make sure that you know what to look for when you have a new diversion. And FYI, if you've been listening to these three episodes and you're really keen on learning more about the history of stomas in general, please tune into the podcast that talks about the history of stomas. I'm dedicating an entire podcast to talk about how stomas first came about, where they originated from, and a rough timeline of which stomas became popularized in certain eras. And in those podcasts, I'm actually going to be talking to you about What the types of pouching systems were at the time, if any, and uh, how people managed in their community, especially back in the old days when, you know, there was no such thing as antibiotics and sewer systems were pretty much non-existent. So there was a very large risk of developing certain infections and, and things weren't generally very clean. So if that's something that interests you, make sure you tune into that podcast. It's called Stoma's Horrible Histories, and that'll be coming to you later on in the series. Okay, so in terms of describing an ileal conduit, an ileal conduit is a form of urinary diversion. And the term ileal refers to the small bowel. For those of you who have tuned into previous episodes, the ileum is the small intestine. And conduit simply means a tube or um, a place to facilitate the exit or guide something somewhere. So ileal, small bowel, conduit, tube. And so when urine comes out from the kidneys, it goes down through a section of small bowel and then comes out from a stoma onto the abdomen, and hence the need to wear a pouch that collects the urine so that you can empty that into the toilet. So uro refers to urological, so bladder uh, and urine. And ostomy, again, is a name, Greek word for opening. So uro, urological, ostomy, opening, urostomy is an opening from the abdomen to facilitate the exit of urine. The urostomy is probably one of my favorite types of stomas, not that I'm biased or anything, but I really am fascinated by how this stoma came about. How did somebody discover that you take a piece of bowel and attach the kidney's ureters to it so that you can still urinate out into a bag in the absence of a bladder? So there's lots of surgical techniques that fascinate me about this. And really, this type of stoma is actually very new. And I'm going to talk about the history of it in just a second and explain it to you. But in terms of forming a urostomy or an ileal conduit, the shortened version involves taking about eight to ten centimeters of the very end of the small intestine. So the small intestine, right before it connects to your large intestine, is the very last portion that surgeons will generally take. So they take a small section of it, separate it from the rest of the bowel. So they stitch the rest of the bowel back together. And that separate piece, they stitch the ureters to one end of that bowel, which stays inside the abdomen. And the other end, they create the stoma. So like the ileostomy, they make a hole in your abdomen, bring that other end of bowel out onto the skin, everted, it, so fold it over on itself, remember like a sock folding over, and they stitch that to your skin. So your kidneys will still produce urine. The urine will travel down the ureter tubes, into that tube of bowel, and will travel out of the body into a bag. Now, the history of the eurostomy is also really interesting um, because it's probably the newest of the three types of stomas. So in our episode on colostomy, we talked about probably one of the oldest stomas. We're talking about records from the 1700s when colostomies were first recorded as being formed. Jump forward 100 years to the 1800s. That was when the ileostomy uh, was formed. And so sort of late 1800s to the 1880s, was the first recorded successful ileostomy but the history of urostomy jumps back even further so we're really talking about into the 1900s so the first recorded urostomy or urinary diversion which is not the urostomy type that we see today but it was first recorded around 1851 and again that patient died probably because of a lack of antibiotics poor sanitary conditions Um, and generally low mortality rates at the time. Um, So 1909, so 60, 50, 60 years later, they started creating urinary stomas out of the appendix. So they would attach the ureters to the appendix, and then the urine would travel through with the faeces. Now, also around the same time that they started creating urinary stomas using the appendix, which... If you know your anatomy, you know the appendix is at the very beginning of the large intestine at the very bottom. So around the same time, people were trialing the implantation of the ureters into the rectum, or the very last storage portion of the bowel. Now this became really difficult because as you can imagine, if you've got both poo and wee coming out of your bowel, you basically have permanent diarrhoea. Um, now that there's two problems that are created with this. Obviously, the pain and discomfort of living with permanent skin damage from having diarrhea constantly has a whole level of problems on its own. But what they were also finding was that people were beginning to reabsorb the waste from the urine and people were becoming poisoned because they were absorbing a waste product and it was almost concentrating in their system. So the kidneys would create the waste product. The large intestine, which as you know if you listened to the first episode, the large intestine is responsible for the absorption of water, would have taken on that waste product. So they were finding that there was an increase in incidence of people suffering from urine poisoning, basically, because they had the ureters attached to their bowel. So that method really became superfluous and and redundant and so they stopped doing it. Jump forward to 1950 and there was a gentleman called Eugene Bricker and Eugene Bricker was the first surgeon to popularise the method that we know of today which is where the conduit is made from a small piece of small bowel uh, which is separated from the rest of the intestines and that's really the method that gets used today. So there's my little bit of stoma history there I'm not going to go too much into it um, because as I said you've got the other episode dedicated to the history of stomas but that's just to give you an idea that the the stoma or the urostomy that we know of these days is actually relatively new really only about 60 to 70 years old um, to the one we see today one of the questions that I do get asked is do they make stomas from the large intestine still and the answer is yes It's called a colo-conduit. And although it's not as popular these days in modern times, in the early 70s and early 80s, the colo-conduit was actually a preferred method of urinary diversion, especially in patients who had undergone radiation treatment. So think about it with radiation treatment. On the bladder, you've got a lot of other organs in that area, and particularly the small intestine. So think of your anatomical chart, um, looking at your guts on the inside. You've got a big pile of small intestines in the middle that sits above your bladder. And you've got your large intestine that goes around the outside and up your abdomen, transverse colon across the top of the abdomen, descending colon around the other side. And so... For people in those days who were having radiation treatment, radiation treatment isn't today what it was back then. Technology in radiation treatment now is very, very good, and they can target specific areas whilst avoiding a lot of those other delicate organs. But back then, that wasn't the case. So if you had radiation treatment on your bladder, there's chances back then that your small bowel and other organs, so your uterus if you're a female, um, and other areas – would have been heavily damaged by radiation. So using a piece of the small intestine to create a conduit back then was not desirable for people undergoing radiation. So one of the things they used to do was choose a selected piece of the transverse colon, so the piece of colon that runs up the very top, across the top of your abdomen, and they would create a conduit from a section of that piece instead because it was high up enough to still be healthy despite the lower abdomen receiving radiation. So that's just one of the reasons why they used to use a colo conduit instead of an ileal conduit. These days, with improved surgical techniques and the technology with radiation treatment, a lot of the small bowel is spared and a lot of surgeons prefer to do an ileal conduit these days because there's more bowel to use. Surgeons find it smaller to work with, so it's a nice, neat little uh, piece of bowel instead of a wider, more muscular piece of bowel to work with. But it is ultimately surgeon preference. But these days, the ileal conduit is the popularised method of urinary diversion. Now, there's obviously many reasons why somebody might undergo uh, surgery to have a urostomy formed, The leading one, obviously, is for bladder cancer. Now, here's some interesting stats. Men, and particularly Caucasian men, are three to four times likely to develop bladder cancer than women. And there's a lot of risk factors for people uh, in developing bladder cancer. The most interesting one is that 50%, it's been suggested, 50% of bladder cancers are due to smoking. That is a very high percentage. So other risk factors include exposure to chemicals in the workplace, and that's been one of the suggestions historically as to why some men develop bladder cancers over women, because a large percentage of men actually work in those environments where they're exposed to lots of different chemicals. In trades in particular, in factory workers, where people are exposed to those chemicals, it's been suggested that they have a risk factor for developing bladder cancer as a result. There's also a suggestion that some medications and herbal supplements have been linked to incidences of bladder cancer. And even so much to say as insufficient fluid intake can impact the risk factors for developing bladder cancer. One interesting point to make also is that a lot of bladder cancers in males are often linked to prostate cancer. So anatomically in men, the prostate sits literally quite below the bladder neck. So those that go on to develop prostate cancer can often have metastases or progression into the bladder. And it may simply manifest as a bladder cancer first before the prostate cancer is recognized. But it's not always due to cancer that people have to have a cystectomy, which is the removal of the bladder. Particularly in people who suffer from urinary incontinence, uh, prolapse, or even uh, neurogenic conditions. So people with spina bifida whose bladders don't function properly. That can all be reasons that may contribute to the decision to have the bladder diverted or even removed and have a stoma formed instead to eliminate urine from the body. So what can you expect from having this type of surgery? Obviously, you're going to have a cut down the middle of your belly because they often do this in laparotomy. If they choose to preserve the bladder and not remove it, so if you're having this operation not due to a cancerous tumour or if it's for other reasons or the bladder is unable to be removed because of other risk factors, they do what they call a bladder-preserving urinary diversion. And it simply means that they'll still connect the ureters to the piece of small bowel, but they won't remove the bladder as a result. So when you wake up from having this operation, they will have obviously cut down the middle of your tummy. You will have had the bowel separated from the remainder of the intestines. So bear in mind, urine and bowels still remain separate after this operation. There's a misconception that you're still going to have poo coming through a bowel but we coming separately and there's a bit of confusion over that so I want to reassure you that the urine will still stay separate from the bowels because we're reconnecting the bowel behind that small piece of tube so when you wake up You will wake up with a nice, healthy, red-pink little stoma about the size, ideally, of a 20-cent piece. Sometimes it's bigger due to swelling. But what you will notice about a urostomy, which is different from the other types of stoma operations, is that you will have two little tubes poking out of that stoma, and they are ureteric stents. And those stents are put in during your surgery, Because when they connect your ureters, the very ends of them, to the piece of conduit, the diameter of your ureters is minimal. We're talking millimetres. So if they're stitching that to a piece of the bowel, as it heals, it's going to develop scar tissue. And if they don't place a tube through that connection, as it heals, it will close over that space. And then you're in a whole world of trouble because you're not obviously going to be passing urine adequately from your kidneys out through the conduit. So when you wake up from your stoma operation, there will be two tubes. Now, often they are red and grey or red and blue. They might be two different colours. And that's usually to indicate which kidney tube is from which. So rule of thumb from the surgeons that I speak to in my job Red is for right, so the red ureteric tube would be going into the right kidney and the other colour would go into the other one. Now that's not always the case, you could have two of the same coloured ureteric stents. It doesn't particularly matter, but that's just a little bit of stoma and nursing trivia for you guys listening out there if you ever wondered why they were two different colours. That's why. Red for right kidney blue for the other one so that if we're monitoring them and one tube is not producing urine we could reasonably indicate that there might be a problem with the kidney on that side or at least the connection from that ureter so these ureteric stents will stay uh, inside your stoma and up into your kidneys for roughly three weeks and it's usually around that time frame in in terms of wound healing that that connection would have finally established itself. It takes on average about two weeks with stitching two pieces together for it to actually develop enough scar tissue to establish its place. So around about the three week mark, your stoma nurse or your surgeon will take these ureteric stents out. And a stoma will simply look just like any other stoma, except that it will produce urine and not poo into the bag and this brings us up to the pouching part of things because when you first got your stoma and you've got two stents hanging out it can be a little bit tricky to wrangle your pouches and move the stents out of the way that are producing lots of liquid so that you can get a good seal on your pouch and so this is something that your stoma nurse will go through with you they'll trial different pouches and different products But one thing you'll have to note is that urostomy pouches will always have a drainable tap function. Not drainable like a drainable ileostomy pouch, which is often a Velcro undo and unravel with quite a wide mouth to it. A urostomy pouch will have a tube with a tap-like connection so that you can stand, undo that tube and empty it into the toilet Much like if you were standing there to do a wee anyway, it would be much the same. And that's really the main feature of a urostomy pouch that distinguishes it as different from the other types of pouches. You can still get one-piece pouches and two-piece pouches. You can still get mechanical coupling and adhesive coupling. So for those of you who are tuning in for the first time and haven't listened to the other podcasts, a one-piece system is where the bag is all in one. You simply peel off the backing and that sticks on over the top of your stoma. Or a two-piece where you have a separate flange or a base plate that sticks onto your skin. And then you have an outside bag that either clicks on to a flange or peels off and sticks on to that base plate. They're just the main differences. But the ingredients in the pouches are all still the same. They're all hydrocolloid based and they all have the ability to be emptied. The only other feature that you will notice with a urostomy pouch that is different from the other types of pouches is that they don't have a filter. And that's kind of a given because obviously the bowel is not having poo go through it, so there's no flatus that's generated, and you're not going to fart from that piece of bowel because it's separate. So those pouches that drain urine are not going to need a filter. However, the other pouches for ileostomy and colostomy definitely need a filter. So that's really the other difference that you'll notice. They're much the same otherwise. Okay, am I boring you guys yet? I say that every episode, but I'm pretty sure that you guys should be finding this interesting. I hope you find it interesting because I love to talk about this sort of stuff. So now the point that we're going to come up to talking about diet, exercise, returning to normal. And where I've talked about in the other episodes about diet in terms of foods that you should avoid and foods that you can eat to try and thicken and thin out output, a urostomy is a little bit different. Yes, you will have had a bowel operation as well as a bladder operation. So the rule of a low-residue diet after your operation still stands, but only temporarily. So what that means is for the first couple of weeks after having an operation on your bowel, we usually recommend that you eat a low-residue or low-fibre diet, which basically means eat lots of soft foods, avoid the hard, crunchy foods like nuts, seeds, grains, Corn, vegetable skins, fruit peels, they are all high in fiber and can be particularly difficult to digest when your bowel is a bit swollen after surgery. So for a couple of weeks, you'll have to go on a low fiber diet just to allow the stomach to adjust and get back to normal. In terms of a bladder stoma, however, you need to bear in mind that hydration is key. When you're drinking water, your kidneys are constantly working to produce that waste and flush out those toxins from the body. And if you're drinking and staying well hydrated, the urine that comes out through the little ureteric stents and out of your stoma should be pale yellow uh, to yellow, almost clear if you're really well hydrated. And because your stoma is going to be made from a piece of bowel, the bowel still behaves like it's going to be passing waste material through it because that's how it's anatomically made. It's made from mucosal cells because the mucosal cells lubricate that piece of bowel in the anticipation that food's going to go through. And it doesn't know any different when we change it to just urine going through. It's still made up that way. So what you'll notice is that when the urine comes out, it will be streaked with bits of mucus. And that's quite normal, but it's a really good indication to start monitoring that mucus output because if you start to see the urine coming out that's quite orange, dark, cloudy, and the mucus that's coming out around your stoma is really thick, gluggy, sticky, that's an indication that you're not staying hydrated enough and you need to drink more fluids. People with a urostomy also have to beware that you have a shorter connection between the outside world and your kidneys. So what we call urosepsis is a big risk factor for you after your operation. And it simply means that you can pick up bugs a little bit quicker and easier than other people would if they had a bladder to store urine and prevent those bugs from traveling up. They can still travel up and that's where people get urinary and kidney infections. But when you have a urinary stoma, you run the risk of a higher bacterial load and you can become sick and dehydrated very quickly if you don't maintain good hydration as well as good hygiene. So I'm talking immediately after your operation when you've got your two little stents poking out of your stoma you need to be a bit careful not to touch the tips of those because that can introduce bacteria up directly into the kidneys and we don't want that. Later on when the stents come out You can touch around the stoma, that's not a problem, but you do need to make sure that you're practicing good hand hygiene, so washing your hands as a preventative measure from allowing bacteria to pool inside the stoma and get up into the kidneys. So by maintaining really good hydration and drinking regular fluids, so aiming for your two litres a day, plus more if you need to, you're going to be flushing out that stoma nice and regularly and preventing all those bugs from travelling up on the inside. One of the questions I do get asked quite frequently is, am I going to be able to get through the night without having to get up and empty the bag? And the answer to that is yes, but what you need to know is that all urostomy bags come with a night connector bag or a night drainage bag. If they really wanted to design bags to hold as much urine as they could possibly hold, you'd be walking around with a big potato sack under your clothes during the day. So the bags that they manufacture are designed to hold about as much as what a normal bladder could hold. And that's anywhere from 250 to 350 mils, sometimes even more if you get the really big ones. But the idea is that you would empty a urostomy pouch about the same amount of times as you would go to the toilet to have a wee during the day. Now, a lot of us don't go to the toilet at night time. Some of us do. That's called nocturia, um, and that's a totally different conversation. But at nighttime, if you have a urostomy, your pouching supplies will come with an adaptable night bag, and that's often a two-litre connector bag that you would wear and have either tucked in the bed beside you or down beside the bed at nighttime that would continue to drain urine into so that you can get a full night's sleep. And so in the evening, before you go to bed, you would attach that night drainage bag to the end of the drainable part. And in the morning, you would get up and empty that night bag into the loo, disconnect it, give it a bit of a rinse and hang it up to dry, ready for use the next night. Now, pouching options would be discussed with your stomal therapy nurse after your operation And they would fit you to a pouch that's easy for you to use and manage and that fits you and your stoma correctly so that you will be as comfortable as possible when it comes time to go home and manage independently. And in this episode, I'm not going to go too much into the process of pouching selection and things like that, uh, because that's going to be dedicated into a different post that looks solely at the specific types of bags and what they do and the features of each. This podcast is really just aimed at explaining the different types of stomas, how they differ from each other and what you can expect from having each one formed. So that's pretty much it. I don't want to keep you guys too much longer talking about stomas. If you have listened to all three episodes, I thank you. You've reached the end. I hope you've learned something helpful out of these three episodes. And I hope your knowledge base has increased enough so that you feel comfortable understanding the differences between the different types of stomas, being colostomy, ileostomy, and urostomy. I hope you've found the historical portion a little bit interesting. As mentioned before, tune into the Stoma's Horrible Histories episode where we talk about how the whole thing came about in the first place. And if this is the first episode that you've tuned into... Thank you for bearing with me. I hope you've gotten something out of it. And I hope to see you guys tuning into other episodes. We're going to be covering everything uh, from pouch types to output consistency to how to get online and access the stoma appliance scheme. I cover everything. So stay tuned. We also have a YouTube channel if you want to subscribe and have a look at some videos. It's under the Oz to Me Nurse Project, O-Z-T-O-M-Y. And you can also keep listening to our podcasts on Spotify, also under the same name of the Oztomy Nurse Project. And you can select individual episodes to listen to or you can listen to the sound of my voice from start to finish. And I hope I don't bore you too much with the content. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you all today. Once again, I'm your host, Felicity, the Oztomy Nurse, and we are coming to you from down under because that's where your stoma is. Take care. Bye.